Thanks, Sam. So a bit of a big topic this morning. <laughs> so Jesus was regularly confronted with suffering and sickness in his, his, his ministry. And yet here we are 2,000 years later with incredible advances in medicine, in technology, in science. And yet we still see tremendous suffering all around the world. And last week when Jenny spoke, uh, she mentioned that they'd been to see the Barbie movie. <laughs> so my question is, do you know the other blockbuster movie that has been come out at the same time? Yet, Oppenheimer, yeah, which is probably not as easy to remember as Barbie. But anyway, so on Friday night, I went to see the film Oppenheimer, which for those who don't know, it's about the guy who invented the atomic bomb in the 1940s. So it is a, a deep film, and it also just reminds us of how we as a human beings have an ability to create mass suffering all around the world. Uh, so, yeah, it's quite a heavy one. And, and Jenny said last week that her talk was quite a serious one. Unfortunately, <laughs> I've got suffering, so it's still going to be fairly heavy this morning as well. So we'll see, see how we go. But, um, yeah, I want to start off by just saying, as Christians, we have two core beliefs. One is that God is omnipotent, and that means all-powerful. There's nothing that God can't do. And on the other side, we believe that God is good that he uses his power for good purposes. The challenge is that when we see suffering in the world, it starts to bring into question those two characteristics of God, and we ask why. And it's important that we get our heads around this, because the more we see suffering, and the more we see challenges around us, we might start to think, maybe God isn't all-powerful. Maybe he actually can't do anything about it. Or even worse, we may start to think, he can do things about it, but he doesn't care. So he's not actually good. So that's why it really matters this morning, because as we understand what God's perspective is on suffering, we can start to understand what God is really like in a deeper way. And realise that he is all-powerful and he is good, but there is still suffering around us in the world. So, as I mentioned, this is a bit of a big topic, so I'm not going to try and cover everything, but I'm going to try and summarise uh, some of the teaching on it. So in the first half, I'm going to talk about some of the key messages around suffering, which is taken from a book by C.S. Lewis called The Problem of Pain. So it's a really key sort of book that explains. So I'm going to summarise some key points from there. <coughs> And then in the second half of my talk, we're going to get into the passage and look at what Jesus' response is to suffering, which is radically different to the disciples' response. So hopefully we'll get to learn something about what Jesus is like uh, from that as well. So, we go on. Yes, so there was Oppenheimer. I forgot to do my slides. Um, yeah, so that is the key question. So we'll start off with this first half, trying to really grapple with and get our heads around, why does God allow suffering? You've already had good conversations between each other, but um, I'm going to start off by saying we talked about God's omnipotence. So God's omnipotence means he has the power to do everything that is possible. But God has also put in place his creation, the laws of nature. 
And it wouldn't make any sense if God regularly went against his laws of nature. So he is all-powerful, but chooses to work within the laws of nature that he put in place. I've got uh, an example of this. Um, you know that when people get married, one thing they're thinking of is, Lord, may there be sunshine on my wedding day. All the pictures will look nicer, the guests won't get wet. So I'm sure most people would ask that simple prayer, can there be sunshine on my wedding day or my child's wedding day? But the fact is, God can make the sunshine on any day, in any place. But he's also put in place the laws of nature, which mean that in this country we need some rain. Just sun is going to not be good for the country. So in the UK it rains for about 100 days a year. So that means that about a third of the weddings that take place in the UK will probably be rained on. And God doesn't convert the UK into a desert, into a barren place, just to answer the prayers for sunshine on wedding days. He allows there to be rain, because the earth needs rain. So what we might consider miracles do have to be rarer than we would want them to be. A friend of mine, his daughter got married recently, and it rained so hard that there were floods everywhere, and the caterers couldn't actually get to the venue. But then luckily, the local chippy provided fish and chip dinners for 100 guests, and the wedding was a wonderful celebration and very memorable. So it's funny, when you look back on it, you think sometimes God answers prayers in a way that we might not expect. It might be different. So that's the first thing, the laws of nature. But secondly, if human beings have free will, we as human beings can't be routinely prevented from hurting other people because we have free will. <clears throat> so I'll give you another example. <clears throat> Here I have a stick of wood. If I were to use this as a weapon, would God make it go limp? No, he allows my free will. But if I turn it into a broom, then it's obviously something more useful. And you might think, oh, God would allow that. But he doesn't make it go limp if I chose to make it a weapon. And in the same way, when I speak to you this morning, you hear me through airwaves. My voice creates vibrations in the air that you can hear. Now, if I speak words that aren't kind, that are hurtful, do you think God would stop the airwaves working? No, he allows the airwaves to work, because that's part of his creation. So he doesn't stop the airwaves if I'm saying unkind things, and then allow the airwaves if I say kind things. That's not how God works, because he has given us free will. And the challenge there is that God is able, but free will means that we have the opportunity to... Uh, we, our free will can lead to pain and suffering, because we live in a sinful world with a sin nature and that's something that Jenny really touched on last week about the challenge of our sin. Now I was brought up in an Anglican church, Church of England, and we said in the, in the common worship service we hurt each other through thought, in word and in deed, through negligence, through weakness and through our own deliberate fault. All these ways that we hurt each other through the free will that God has given us. 
We've been born into the sin nature and into a sinful world. And Jenny said so powerfully last Sunday that we underestimate the power of sin. So this begs the question, if God knows that as sinful beings, when he gives us free will, we'll end up hurting each other, is he really good? Why doesn't he step in more often? Why doesn't he step in to stop that happening? So then we get on to the, the challenge, which is we need a fresh understanding of what goodness really is. God's goodness may not look quite as we expect. So I'll explain that. Sometimes I think we don't so much want a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven. I'll try and explain what I mean by that. You might know the type of grandparent that really is focusing on trying to avoid the child having any sense of pain. So they want to look after the child because they love the child a bit, but they don't want them to have anything that will cause them to cry. So if they cry, give them ice cream. And if they cry more, give them more ice cream. Oh, nothing's, not, nothing's uh, held back from that child, anything, to stop them experiencing pain. That's quite often what a grandparent may be thinking. But God isn't our heavenly grandparent. He's our heavenly father. And he has a different emphasis. The thing is, he's good, but critically, he is sinless. He is perfect. And the fact is, we forget that because he is utterly without sin, when he looks at us, he knows that we have sin in our hearts and his perfection is repelled by the sin in us. And therefore, his emphasis is not a focus on just keeping us happy, but actually instead that his sinless perfection may transform us and may and his love may change our hearts and transform who we are. So he has a higher objective. His love must do its work on the sin in our lives to transform us and to make us more like Jesus. So to summarise, God is omnipotent, we said, so he's all-powerful. And God is also good, so that means he uses his power for good purposes. So why does he allow suffering? Firstly, because of the laws of nature, that miracles have to be rarer than we, we might want them to be. Secondly, we have free will and a nature of sin, which means that we end up hurting each other. And thirdly, it's by his goodness that he doesn't always prevent our suffering because he has a desire to use it to transform us and that we may grow to be more like Jesus. So that's the summary of the first part of the talk. You're still looking awake, so that's a good point so far. So that isn't the whole story. We now get onto the text for today, which is we know that sometimes God chooses to alleviate suffering. He chooses to do something supernatural. So let's get into the text and understand how that works. So in John 9, verses 1, it said, As he went along, he saw a man that was blind from birth. Now we know that Jesus and the disciples, they must have regularly come up against seeing people around them who had various challenges. 
they didn't have the medicine we have today, so they would have had a lot of people who were, who were blind or different challenges. And also, because there isn't the support, a blind person probably wouldn't have been able to hold down a job. They probably would have to beg to survive. So they would have had a very difficult life, a very challenged life. Just imagine never being able to see beauty in the world. Imagine never being able to see your family or your friends. So both Jesus and the disciples would have known how difficult life was for this person. Which is why it's even more mind-blowing that when the disciples see this scene, and they see this guy who has been blind from birth, the first thing that they say is, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind? Interesting, they say rabbi. Who knows what the word rabbi means? <coughs> yes, it means teacher. So they saw this guy who'd been blind since birth, who'd had such a challenged life, and the first thing they say is, teacher, let's have a theological discussion about sin. They just completely missed it, didn't they? There's a real human being sat before them, and they're wanting to have this theological discussion. I just, just find that really amazing. And then they're focusing on who's to blame. Is it his sin? Is it his parents' sin? So I think one thing I take as a challenge is, do we do that? Do we miss the fact that around us there are people who have various challenges, who might be suffering in different ways, and yet we got caught up in technical discussions rather than actually seeing the need of the person? Are we like the disciples sometimes? Do we find ourselves judging? Like I know sometimes if I see somebody outside Aldi begging, uh, I might say, well, maybe their parents should have done better. Maybe it's their own fault. Maybe they've got into addictions and it's their fault. I think if I'm doing that, then I'm acting like the disciples. And I'm not seeing the person for who they are and what their need is. Spurgeon, the famous uh, uh, preacher, said, It is ours not to speculate, but to form, perform acts of mercy and love. Not to speculate, but to perform acts of mercy and love. So the question for us is not where has suffering come from, but how we should respond to it. That's the thing that has to lodge in our heart. How do we respond when we see suffering? The disciples' response was, who sinned? Theological discussion. So let's unpack what Jesus' response is, because it's different. So there are three key things that Jesus says, which we'll go through. So the first one, Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. So you can see that he's not even getting into their discussion about sin. He's saying, he swats away their question by saying, no, neither this man nor the parents. Effectively, that's not the important thing. And then he gets on to the important thing. The important thing is, this happened that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus put this man's blindness in the context of what God was wanting to do. And this might be really tough for us to hear, but God's divine perspective 
is that this man's suffering had a place and a purpose. God did not cause this man's suffering, but he certainly used it. He used it to bring about the works of God, to do something incredible. And in this case, the specific work of God was to bring healing. The thing is, God may reveal his works in many different ways. It may be healing, or it may be perseverance. It may be endurance to get through the challenges that you're facing. It may be he gives peace in a time of real trial. It may be he gives joy. There's many different ways that God reveals his goodness through suffering. Earlier this year, a good friend of mine died of cancer. I'd known her for many years and she left behind, she was in her 40s, she left behind her husband and two children. And when she was going through her treatment, she, her friends and her family all prayed for healing. But that healing didn't come. And it didn't make any sense. When the doctors were with her explaining that her cancer was terminal and that she wouldn't survive it, lots of people were asking, why? Why? But her response was really simple. It was, why not? The thing is, the issue of whether she was going to be healed or not healed did not impact her deep faith that God was good. That was the central thing for her. Well, the third thing that Jesus goes on to say is, as long as it's day, we must do the work of him who sent me. And I find this really amazing, that Jesus sensed an urgency. He says, as long as it's day, we need to get on and do the works of God. And by what he meant by day was simply his earthly ministry, the time that Jesus walked physically on this planet. And you know, our time on earth is short. And having turned 50 this year, I realise that as you get older, it seems to go more quickly. It seems to accelerate. So our time is short. So what an honour it is that Jesus includes us in his mission. As long as it's day, we must do the works. He didn't say, I must do the works. He said, we must do the works. And then after saying this, we know the rest of the story. He spat on the ground, he made some mud, he went to the guy, he put it on the guy's eyes. He said, go, wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went, he washed and he came home seeing. So the question I'll leave you with today is really a fairly straightforward one, which is how can you be part of doing the works of God that Jesus invites you to be part of? So don't be like the disciples, missing the point and maybe getting hung up on the theology or some other technical discussion when you see somebody who's suffering in front of you. Is there a good work that God wants you to do in the pain of the people who are around you, who you come into contact with? What's in your path 
in life? What's going on in people around you? So think about those opportunities that God places in your path. And then, before God, consider how you can make a difference in that position, in that place where somebody is experiencing challenge. So that's the challenge for this morning.